Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. to Out of the Blue. It is Sunday the 4th of March. I have no idea where January and February went. Uh, my name's Heather. And I'm Erin. Welcome to the show. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. You could also be listening online, digital radio, podcasting. We're everywhere. There is absolutely no excuse not to listen to us. So you better do it. So today we are going to be talking about all things dolphin and whale in the bay. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. La, 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 la. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. La, 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 la. A 3CR supporter. Well, as we said, welcome to Out of the Blue. Today we are going to be chatting to Sue Mason from the Dolphin Research Institute. Are you there, Sue? I'm here. Hi, Heather. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for joining us on the show today. I know Sundays are usually your days when you're out and you're looking after all the dolphins. Yeah, look, we're often doing some community monitoring on a Sunday, so um, you've just managed to catch me today. You're very lucky. Perfect. Now, massive congratulations on the recent graduation. Yes, what a what an achievement! So I finished my um, my PhD. Um, as most as all PhD students know, it is a journey and a half that only can be understood by somebody who's gone through the process. But um, yeah, big celebrations! I was lucky enough to, um, to to graduate at Curtin University, so we had an amazing outdoor ceremony um, in Perth a couple of weeks ago, which uh, ended with fireworks. So oh, good very stuff. unique Kidding. celebration. Really so, celebrating yeah. it. Good stuff. Really celebrating, exactly. (laughs) Now, today we wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, the research and your thesis, which is like giving birth to a child and then nurturing it for a couple of years. (laughs) Um, So a lot of people, I guess, around Melbourne are aware that we have dolphins in the bay. They've they've got an idea, you know, they've watched Flipper, um, (laughs) but they don't really know a huge amount. I guess, about the different species or where they live yep. or what sort of habitat yep. they're utilising. So I guess, yeah, yep. go yeah, for it. Look, we, well, look, we're lucky enough that um, we have two species of dolphin in the bay. We have a species of bottlenose that a lot of people pretty much know about. However, there's a second species that is a much smaller community. Uh, there's about 40 animals in total in the community. 
And they're called short-beaked common dolphins. Now, the unusual thing about this, this community of dolphins is typically common dolphins are offshore species. So typically if you're, you know, boating, you know, 10 k's offshore off in Bass Strait, you, you'll encounter them. However, these, this particular group of dolphins are actually, um, can be found between Mount Eliza and Mount Martha in the bay. They've got a really small home range. And like I said, it's a really small community. When we first started monitoring, there was about 30 of these individuals, mostly uh, with about 12 to 15 adults in there. Um, and it's slowly increased in size. Um, we seem to have some transient animals that have decided that Port Phillip's a really cool place to live and to stay. And, uh, yeah, they, they seem to like the um, that uh, drop-off bathymetry, like I said, along the Mount Martha to Mount Eliza coastline. So it seems to be a little bit steeper and, and the currents um, and the productivity in the area. So they, they, they pretty much found on a regular basis um, directly off Mornington. Um, so, yeah, pretty cool little community. Fantastic. So is it a regular occurrence that you can find little communities these around uh, other parts of the coast? No, this... and that's, the, un- that's yeah. the unusual thing. We're just starting to make sense of it. Okay. And in fact, I presented at a uh, international mammal conference last year in Perth, and a colleague of mine, Cass Kemper, from the South Australian Museum went, oh, I wonder if our common dolphins are actually resident too. So, oh. you know, we're just starting to potentially see smaller groups of, um, of resident coastal, literally inshore coastal common dolphins, um, which is not typically documented in the... Um, like I said, in the literature, it's usually they're offshore and, and travel huge migratory sort of routes in chase of uh, prey and, and productivity. So Okay. So you were mentioning that when you first started um, noticing there was only about 30. So is it really just a, a very recent occurrence that they've started calling uh, this place their home or is, do you think they've been there for a while? Look, it's possible. There's, there's, there is sightings and there has been um, records of stranded common dolphins in the bay for a long time. However, um, the Dolphin Research Institute first noticed these animals in 2006. Okay. And then the community became my focus uh, of my honours work in 2007. So we've really only been monitoring this community for, well, I say a few years. It's actually 10 years now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's time's flown. It really um, does. But, yeah, it is recent, we think. Okay, fantastic. So what what are the most noticeable differences between the, the two species then? So the, the bottlenose dolphins use the whole of the bay, and mm-hmm. there's about 130 of those animals, and they tend to migrate. Um, so down at this time of year, we'll find uh, a lot of those animals in the southern end of the bay, and you can actually swim with those, the bottlenose, uh, on the, the dolphin swim boats with Polpero or Moonraker or Seal or um, the third one, Watermark. I actually attempted to do boat. that. Uh, just two weeks ago, sadly, the dolphins did not want to play. However, I did have a fantastic <laughs> time with our resident yeah. seals, so that they were fantastic. Yeah, yeah and that, look, that is one of the beauties of our of our dolphin swim um, tours in Melbourne is that we, you know, while people go to see the dolphins, there's actually a lot of other stuff to see if you don't see the dolphins. So it takes a little bit of pressure off those animals, That's which right. is really lovely. And and for me, it was um, just fantastic to be out in the bay as well. Yeah, how, how wonderful is it in southern Port Phillip during summer when the water's warmer oh, and clear? It's, it's an amazing place, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, so that the, you'll encounter the bottlenose if you swim with it, you go on a dolphin swim tour. Um, and then, of course, during the sort of the cooler months, the dolphins will often find a lot of them up north and sometimes even in the Yarra, in the, in the Yarra River and the Maribyrnong as well. Whereas the common dolphins, um, they seem to stick in the same area, but they just tend to move inshore and offshore a little bit. So. Okay. Uh, they don't have the, the sort of migration throughout the bay like the, like the bottlenose dolphins do. So, 
Um, and so, the, the common dolphins are a much smaller species as well, and they've got a beautiful gold stripe on them, so they're quite distinct in terms of um, identification. So what are really the factors? I mean, if you're, if you're saying they're not moving around too much, what are really the factors that you believe are keeping them in this area? Food. Food. Okay, <laughs> it's like, always back like about food. I was, ex- <laughs> I was explaining to a group of teenage girls the other day, pretty much what draws everybody in when they're, you know, and keeps people there is food. Um, yep. <laughs> it's a bit like a, you know, so a smorgasbord for uh, for, for dolphins. Um, look, I think a lot of it is some pretty productive areas, a lot of bait fish and, and garfish and anchovies, pilchards, those sorts of smaller sorts of shoaling fish that sort of can be found along that Mornington coast. Um, and I think a little bit to do with the depth as well because there's quite a distinct drop-off, whereas a lot of the rest of the bay can be quite shallow and quite a, a, small, a slow graduation to sort of depth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it, so the bathymetry and, and the, basically the available, availability of food in the area. Sure. <laughs> nice and easy. If they're only using such a small area and they're going inshore and offshore, well, sort of into the shallows and into the deeper area, could that be seen as, I guess, micro-migration if it's a seasonal movement? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I, really, I really small is. migration? Does that count? <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 that term hasn't been used in the literature, but I like it. I might use that one. <laughs> I might have to coin that one before you use it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the ways we actually showed that was my PhD. So my PhD was a, a combination of some vessel-based surveys where we got ID and were able to identify individuals. But then the other rather large component of it, which is quite a unique thing for common dolphins, is we're actually able to use a, a, a surveyor's field light and a, a computer program written by a surveyor by the name of Dr. Eric Neist from the University of Newcastle. And he wrote a program called VADAR. And the beauty of VADAR is it's actually written to track cetaceans. And so we, we plugged the theodolite into the, um, the computer. And by, able, by sort of grading a fix, what we call a fix, so where the, the dolphin meets the water, we're actually able to get a GPS reading um, or location on the animal. So that's how we're actually, I was able to show those micro-migrations. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, so we've got this great seasonal data, set of de- seasonal data set that basically from the one location that shows that during winter these animals can be found quite close to the coast. And in fact, sort of during the month of August, we've often found them swimming, actually swimming through the moorings um, down at Snapper Point. Right. Um, whereas summer, they're much harder to find. So I think... Um, obviously the fish probably move offshore where the cooler water is and where it's probably a little bit less busy in terms of moving boat traffic. And so the dolphins probably follow um, follow that the, their prey species sort of a little bit further offshore. So, yeah, but I like yeah. that. I like that micro-migration. Micro-migration. <laughs> yeah. I would have thought smaller animals would be more capable of that, but maybe that's what the dolphins are showing. Exactly. You had to copyright like that. <laughs> yeah. And what are you using to identify your individuals? I'm assuming there's some photography involved? Yeah. So what we found is, and we've supported some work of uh, Krista Huntman from um, uh, Massey, Massey University in New Zealand. And again, it's really hard because typically common dolphins are in super pods of like a thousand or so animals. Um, so we've, we're showing that uh, we actually can use their dorsal fins and the, the shape and the nicks and notches and the, the colour patterns as well to actually identify individuals. Um, and some of them can be really, really distinct. So we've actually got one that we call Funky Fin and she's actually got a really dark dorsal fin and this huge notch out of the base of it. So that's why she's called Funky Fin. And then we've got other ones that we we tend to call them, I tend to call them, um, so little memory jogging names. So we've got, so for example, V-Nick, so obviously she's got a 
a V notch in the top of her dorsal fin. That um, makes and sense. then there's other ones like Ragged Fin, who's got a really, really sort of banged up dorsal edge um, that we know by sight again in the in the field. So um, yeah, so we're able to use like what typical like bottlenose dolphins. We're actually able to use fin identification uh, methods for common dolphins too. And having spent so much time with these guys and knowing them by sight, do you find you form a sort of bond with them? The familiarity. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I sort of get. I get. It's sad when you're a scientist and you get excited over some of the little things. <laughs> I get super excited when I see tall fin. Yeah. Um, because tall fin is sort of one of the central animals, but for quite a while he was the only male that I could identify in the group, and the majority of the other adults were female. Okay. And um, and he would often come to the boat. We 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 talk a little bit about decoy behaviour. So we often think that he would actually come to the boat and bow ride so that we actually didn't approach some of the other dolphins, so it was a decoy. So wow, okay. yeah, so yeah, so, so always excited to see um to see tall fin. And then one of the other animals that he often hangs out with too is an animal called Esther, um, named after the old uh, synchronized swimmer a long time ago. But um <laughs> so Esther Williams. But um so Esther's another one that I love to see because we first photographed her in two thousand and seven with a, a young calf. And uh, she seems to be a really sort of healthy, prolific breeding, you know, every two or three years. So it's good to see her on a regular basis with her calves. Great. Yeah. So you're also seeing the population, population dynamics um, happen in front of you? Yes, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, good and it's, it's changing. So one of the other aspects that I looked at in terms of my PhD was using those fin identification images was to actually start to look at the social structure of these animals. Fantastic. Um, so within the adults. And there's definitely a, um, a central group that stick together. And then there's more of a peripheral group um, that we don't often see with the central group. But then you also get animals that move in between the, the central group and that less that less sort of, um, that, the less central group, the, yeah, so so the outside group. So, do you think there's a bit yeah. of politics involved there, moving between yeah, the groups? Yeah. Mm, interesting, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how many males do you think are in the population now? So initially, um, we initially, like I said, there was initially tall fin, I think two or three adults that I couldn't uh, get the gender of. Mm-hmm. I don't do genetic work with them, but we could certainly tell who was who in terms of the gender by the um, the calves that would stay with that particular with a particular animal. Um, and sometimes too, we can actually, if the animals actually roll over um, when they're on the bow, we can actually get a gender by looking at whether they've got mammary slits in general or what the general uh, where the genitals are placed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can do a visual check. Um, so Torfin was one of the, the was pretty much the only male, and then October two thousand and uh, what are we now? So sixteen, uh, we found a group of um, uh, males that we think came into the bait. The other thing, oh, the, the other thing, um, common dolphins actually have what we call a postanal keel as well. So if the animal comes out of the water, you can see this really distinct lump that sits behind, or located just behind the anus. So we had the GoPro in, and this is a, a new group of animals that I hadn't seen before and didn't recognise their dorsals. And we popped the GoPro in, and we saw at least um, three postanal keels. So I was pretty excited to um, to know that some males had actually entered the bay and were potentially, uh, potentially, like I say, I'm not sure. You never, you never tell as a scientist, but potentially mating with with some of the females that were were in the bay as well. So, so yeah, have they stuck around? Yeah, look, they have. Um, we've actually had a little bit of time off the water while I sort of wrapped up my PhD. So um, hopefully this year we'll get out and do a lot more work and, and 
Uh, as far as I know, they stuck around. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see they're still remaining in the bay at this point in time. Yeah. So if they've come into the bay, where have they come from? Mm. Possibly Bass Strait. Okay. <laughs> we do. Yeah, we do have common dolphins are pretty common outside into Bass Strait, and in fact, their their status in terms of um, uh, just yeah, I'd say IW, IUCN, but they're known that they're they're actually common um, in Victorian waters. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so it's, we we just assume that they potentially come in from from um, from Bass Strait. So if they've been hanging so, out in Bass Strait, their behaviour must be quite different to the individuals who have chosen to stay, I guess, in a nice sheltered bay. Yeah, and look, you know, that's another thing that I'll write up as one of my one of my PhD papers. Um, so that the the gender ratio typically of common dolphins in Bass Strait is is fifty fifty. Um, and that's that's come through genetic analysis through the likes of Nikki Zanardo and Kirsten Bildman. Um, what we're finding, though, is the animals that are in the bay are actually majority of them are females. So partly, I think, here because of the productivity of the bay and to meet their energy requirements and probably a little bit of safety as well um, and away from predators, um, especially if you've got lots of young calves around you. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so that's a really interesting one because, like I said, outside in the in Bass Strait, it's a 50-50 gender uh, mix, whereas in the in the bay there's definitely a female bias. Mm. But that female bias is pretty typical of coastal um, inshore dolphins, for example, the bottlenose dolphins here in Port Phillip, um, or even coastal as in um, like Western Australia through Bunbury and Mandurah as well. So, so it's funny because they're common dolphins, but they're sort of displaying the social structure that we'd actually find in, in typical bottlenose dolphins. Okay, so the the males that are born within the bay are they staying around, or do they seem to be moving out into Port Phil- into um Bass Strait? Yeah, look, that's a really good question and one that we haven't been able to answer yet. Okay, um, what we're hoping though is, and you know, this is again, it's sort of. When calves are young, they're very hard to identify because they don't have those nicks and notches on their dorsal fins. Oh, of course. And the coloration hasn't sort of solidified as well. However, we have one animal in the bay that we call DD, mm-hmm. um, which is short for dorsal damage. <laughs> and, nice. Um, DD's much DD, nicer. Yeah, I know. Um, so poor old DD actually copped a an impact injury when it was a calf, and it was actually the calf of an animal that we know as square notch. Um, we don't know how it happened. It's potentially a vessel strike. We're not 100% sure, or it's something else that's you know run into it, or you know potentially a shark as well. We, we don't know. We weren't there, but we just all we know is that thankfully the injury healed. But DD's got a really distinct dorsal, and so the bonus for us is that we know when it was born, we know who the mum was, um, and we hope that as DD mature, I mean, no DD's a male because again we saw DD roll over. Um, as a as a, a young calf, um, and we'd be able to, to work out the gender. So hopefully, what uh, hopefully if DD sticks around, that may answer that that question for us. But um, unfortunately, with uh, dolphins and marine mammals, a lot of your questions take years to actually <laughs> answer. So yeah, true. It, it needs patience, and um, yeah. So, is there any are there any scientists out there doing? tracking in terms of like what they're doing with great white sharks where they'll have a tracker on the dorsal fin and follow the shark is there anything like that being done with dolphins yeah look the hard part with with actually applying trackers is that um we can do it with larger cetaceans so we do do it with blue whales we do it with humpbacks and you know larger species 
And part of the reason for that is the trackers that are required are quite big mm-hmm. and the actual um, the pins actually go through the skin into the blubber layer so it remains attached. Mm. Um, and getting that on is, 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 a, is a challenge because they basically have to be attached remotely, so from a boat and literally shot in. Um, so in potentially, terms of dolphins, so potentially yeah, quite stressful for the dolphin. Yeah. Yep. So, sorry? Quite, quite stressful, but potentially for the dolphin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But with dolphins, of course, they don't have the blubber layer. So, and, and of course, because of their size, is much reduced compared to a humpback whale. You know, awesome. you need some pretty tiny sort of trackers. So they're not there yet. Um, our colleagues over in Sarasota and Florida have for a number of years actually drilled through the dorsal fin and attached, you know, satellite tags, basically. So that would mean restraining um, the dolphin on the side of the yeah. boat? Okay. Yeah, well, in Sarasota, Florida, actually has a lot of... It's an estuarine environment, so it's quite shallow. So oh, they okay. actually are able to basically get the animals into the shallows and capture them. They'll do a whole stack of medical tests as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, these animals are really well monitored and, and, um, and tracked. And, uh, but they're sort of, they've been doing it for 40 years, so they know exactly what they're doing and what they can get, the data they can get. Yeah. So, yeah, so we, we're, we're not at that stage. Um, we can do suction cupped um, tags on, on whales called D-tags, mm-hmm. um, but those tags only last for pretty much a day before they, it's what we call a burn time, so it basically is programmed to drop off, so it, it, the suction is you know, reduced and it drops off. Mm-hmm. So but the you, trouble with that is they're not quite there in terms of the size for dolphins, and they're only about fifteen thousand dollars a tag. So oh, of course, wow. come down a little bit of money. So you'd and, hope and that they, they'd hope you to give some really good data in that twenty-four hours because if oh, it just yeah. sits around and does nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get a lot of um, depth and, and roll your sort of you know dive behaviour profiles and acoustics as well. Oh. Um, but yeah, you, the last thing you want to do is actually lose a D tag because it's just it's too expensive. They're getting cheaper and yep. they're getting smaller, yep. okay. but it's just a matter of time. So, yeah, so when the, the short answer to your question is no, we don't tag our dolphins. Yep. <laughs> um, and we can get um, the data that we need at the moment from a lot of it from just the ID stuff in terms of where they're going and who's with who. So in terms of the damage, I imagine lots of people out there are like, oh, yeah, the sharks are going after the dolphins. But how much of it do you think is, is boat strike and human, human impact that's caused the damage to these dorsal fins? Yeah, look, the interesting thing is there is other communities, um, especially like around, surprisingly, Shark Bay um, in Western Australia, that there's some of their populations in Western Australia, some of them have some pretty, you know, impressive shark bites on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at this point in time, we can't, we really can't pinpoint any, any shark damage on our dolphins. Um, though, like I said, the likes of do- with D-Day, we'd probably, if we had to sort of go 50-50, we'd probably say it's more likely to be a boat impact than a shark impact. Um, so potentially, so yeah. So our, our dolphins are pretty good in terms of shark bites and shark damage. So potentially, a lot of this damage you were talking a lot about the the nicks and uh, scrapes on their dorsal fins have come from being in that small urban environment. Uh, it does, it's it's general wear and tear. Okay. Um, it's also surprisingly how vicious dolphins can be to uh, one another. Okay. So um, you know, it often um, photos we've got photos of dolphins with lots of teeth marks and rake marks that are actually done by other dolphins. Ah, okay. Um, and I suppose this general sort of running into stuff too, a bit like us as humans, sort of, you know, you're not looking one way and you're running into something going the other. Oh, yeah. Um, My little yeah, toes are so. really bad. <laughs> it's the exact same reason. <laughs> so, yeah, I understand. <laughs> yep, yeah. So, 
Yeah, so it is, does tend to be general wear and tear, and that trailing edge of the dorsal fin is actually thinner than other areas of the dorsal as well. Okay. So it's more susceptible to that, that sort of damage. Yep. Now, having said that, it's still you know relatively warm. Summer's lingering around a little bit longer. Which is good. Um, people out on watercraft, there are restrictions on approaching dolphins, aren't there? There absolutely is, and, and those restrictions exist for two things, and that's to basically protect the marine mammals and reduce the impacts, as we've been talking about, and the other thing is, too, is it's actually to protect the public from animals as well. So we've spoken a lot about the dolphins today. Um, if you're in a recreational vessel and you see dolphins, you need to stay a minimum distance of a um, 100 metres away. So that's a powered a powered uh, personal fishing boat. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, that's considerable. If you are on a... And funnily enough, I think a kayak actually fits under that category as well because it's a vessel. Oh, okay. That's yeah. very interesting. Okay. <laughs> and I, there's a me too. I heard that one the other day. Um, however, for example, a jet ski, you need to be a minimum of 300 metres away. Now, the interesting thing is that changes for whales. So if you are in a, a, a personal boat and you see whales, you need to remain a, a minimum of 200 metres away from a whale. So, yeah, they get a little bit complex, but it's at the very least, you know, it's okay if the animals approach you, it's okay, but it's best to sort of stay away and keep them away from you. But like I said, especially with whales, I mean, you're talking, if you approach a humpback whale, you've you're got a whale that could be 40 tonne worth of animal. So the last thing you want to do is actually be in the wrong place at the wrong time with a whale. So That's right, you've got to yeah, respect it. best to stay at least 200 metres away. Yes. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Sue. Thank you. Um, if people wanted to find out more about your dolphins, what would you recommend they do? Yeah, look, they can go to our website, which is dolphinresearch.org.au. And, uh, yeah, more than happy to uh, explain a little bit um, if people wanted to contact us via our website. Oh, we'll definitely put a link on our um, Facebook page for everybody to follow that. So thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday and go out and find some dolphins. Um, Coming up next is Sally with Out of the Pan. So thanks again for joining us. Remember, you can podcast the show listen online or on digital radio but otherwise we'll see you next week bye bye Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.